This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Jen Wilkin and JT English. What's up? Hey. That was my youth minister voice. What? Hey. JT, what are you doing? It looks like JT's texting or something. He's looking at the Bible. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm reading my Bible. Okay. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just getting my Bible open. I thought if we're going to talk about Romans, I feel like I should have the Bible available. It's a good idea. Just yeah. generally. Well, listen, this is our, we had the teaser episode. And we whet your appetite for Romans. And today, we're diving in. We're diving we're in. Diving into, we're diving into Romans. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 15 of Romans chapter 1. Of course, of course, of course. If you missed our teaser episode, we got into a lot of historical details, dating, authorship, audience. A lot of those uh, uh, topics are covered uh, in that first episode. But if you miss it, just here's a 30-second recap Uh, Romans is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, a church that was probably but not definitely founded by Jewish Christians in the late AD 30s into the AD 40s. This letter was sent on the kind of back part of Paul's missionary journey and uh, life as an apostle. Uh, He had not been to the church in Rome. It was carried by Phoebe and almost certainly read by Phoebe. And it arrived there somewhere in the AD 55 to AD 58 range. Uh, That is kind of the historical context around it. The church is comprised of Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles is a large category, and we should understand that in a global place like Rome, this church was probably incredibly diverse economically, diverse from a class perspective, diverse racially, culturally, and certainly it was comprised of Jews and Gentiles. Mm -hmm. Anything that I missed there? No. Thank you. Perfect. Great. Thank you. Uh, do one of you want to volunteer to read the text? I'll read Jen it. Jen wants to read it. Imagine that. <clears throat> I will read it. We, 1 through 15. Right. That's what we're doing, right? 1 through 15. Okay. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Jen. Uh, Okay, so right out of the gate, 
Paul. First word uh, here in the letter that you're reading, Paul. Paul, servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Uh, who's this guy? Huh? Well, first of all, he's someone who likes a run on sentence. Can we say that? <laughs> Amen. Yeah, he, and he doubles down on it here and elsewhere. Um, yeah. <laughs> who's this guy? Who's this Paul? Where do we meet him? When do we meet him? What's he up to? What's his backstory? We talked a little bit about this. If you go back to our Acts seasons that we did, this is a guy mm-hmm. who is persecuting the church. He is zealous for God's law. He understands himself to be as a Pharisee in the tradition of the prophets. The prophets' primary uh, mode of of, uh, of participating in God's redemptive history was to help people not syncretize Judaism with other uh, beliefs or religious systems of the day, whether that be Egyptian or Babylonian or Akkadian or Assyrian or eventually Greek and Roman. And so Paul sees himself as somebody who's trying to purify God's people, specifically Jews, from not falling in, into relationship with this new, you know, quote unquote Messiah named Jesus. And so yeah. when Jews are converting to Christianity, he sees this as syncretism or as unfaithfulness to the one God of the Bible, specifically Yahweh. And so as a religious zealot, he sees it and takes it upon himself to to persecute these people because they're being unfaithful to God. And as he's on this road to Damascus, uh, he is, you have to almost get yourself in his mindset. He's probably riding in a chariot. He's going forward, believing he's participating in religious duties. And you think about like Isaiah chapter six and Isaiah sees the Lord ascended high and lifted up and sees the train of his robe in this beautiful picture of who God is. And Paul envisions himself again in this, in this kind of Isaiah way of being. And who does he meet? It's not just Yahweh, but it's Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus mm-hmm. meets him and radically converts him. He says, Paul, Saul, Saul at the time, Saul, Saul, who are you persecuting? And he meets Jesus. He's taken away. Scales fall off of his eyes. And he he becomes as zealous for actually the same God. He just misunderstood Yahweh. And now he sees Jesus as Yahweh. And he becomes this missionary church planter who is spending most of his time uh, in the Eastern Mediterranean in places like Ephesus and Corinth, proclaiming the good news of the gospel, planting churches and setting up healthy churches through other men like Timothy and other elders. That's good. That's a, Man, that was a killer overview of his backstory. Jen, let's drill down in some of the details. When do we meet him for the first time? Well, we actually meet him in a very familiar story, but he's kind of in the background. And that's at the beginning of the book of Acts where we have the first martyr. And most people know that story, the story of Stephen being stoned um, after giving a sermon in which he clearly presents the gospel in, in actually what will come to be a very Pauline style, if you ask me. I mean, he's, he's mm-hmm. confrontational. He's not... Uh, he doesn't start with God loves you and wants and has a wonderful plan for your life, uh, and it's because of this that um, that the Jewish leaders are provoked against him, and and he is um, stoned, and we find out that. Paul or Saul at the time is standing by holding everybody's coats while they go about the business of, of ending Stephen's life. So that's the first time that we see him. Um, and then he circles back into the story later on when we get the road to Damascus story. Yeah. And so when we meet Paul for the first time, he's presiding over an execution of Stephen, yeah. the, uh, who is the first Christian martyr. Is yeah. that fair to say? Yeah. And his role there, at least in that story, is permittent. Yeah, I mean, was that, I think that's fair, right? Yeah, I don't know. Do we know whether it's indicating that he's sort of a bystander or, or is he almost presented as the one who's the puppeteer? I don't know. That, that'd be a good question. Yeah. 
Yeah, it, you know, in 8-1, it says, you know, so we get they're, they're laying down their garments next to, uh, at the feet of a young man named Saul, and then 8-1, and Saul approved of his execution. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's to be, like, tacit approval, like, he just is kind of like, yeah, you know, you guys do what you need to do, mm-hmm. or if they were looking to Saul for the head nod, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know if Saul is, like, Joaquin Phoenix and Gladiator with the thumb, <laughs> like, if he's, like, <laughs> thumbs up, thumbs down, but he's certainly... Uh, you know, axes fit to acknowledge like Saul was, he approved of this. He thought this was an okay at the very least, if not a good thing to do. And he's going on the road to Damascus to do at least imprison these people, yeah. if not what they have done to Stephen. Yeah, right. right. So if there is any ambiguity so, at the stoning of Stephen, it is certainly removed as the story progresses. Mm. Absolutely. So I think it's important to talk a little bit about Paul's pedigree because it does help us a little bit when we think about where he's coming from. You know, in Philippians, Paul actually gives us his CV a little bit, his resume, you know. Uh, he's talking to the church in Philippi about not putting confidence in the flesh. And he says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Paul tells us a lot there. He tells us he's from Israel. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. He tells us basically he's like a Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning like, hey, like I was VIP status. I was mm-hmm. an all-star. I got the, I got A plus on my Hebrew exam. Uh, and as to the law, he treated the law as a Pharisee. And we know that Paul uh, and the history of the church was, was trained by Gamaliel. Mm-hmm. And Gamaliel comes up in the New Testament a little bit, but I, without getting into too many details, for Paul to have been trained by somebody like Gamaliel would have been like to learn math from Einstein. Right. Or to learn Einstein's painting grandson. from Picasso. Right, right, right. right. Yes. Yeah, because Gamaliel, was, his grandfather is Hillel, right? Isn't that what the story is yes. on Gamaliel? Yeah. Yeah. So it's like to be taught by Gamaliel would have been to be taught by one of the greatest rabbis of the period. Well, and so, can you help us, Kyle, serious. help us understand, you know, because I think when Paul lists off all of those credentials, sometimes we're not really sure how we're supposed to hear that. Like, it's like, is he bragging? Like, what is his angle when he lists off those credentials? What is he establishing for his audience? And is he, is he, is it when he says those things, he is primarily speaking to his Jewish listeners, right? He is. And he's demonstrating credibility. He's basically saying like, listen, you may, you might be whispering in the corners of the room that this crazy guy, Paul doesn't take the law seriously. Let me tell you, I take the law very seriously. Gamaliel taught me. I wasn't a Sadducee. I wasn't, a, uh, I, I wasn't one of the guys who was in favor of syncretism or cultural assimilation. I was a Pharisee. So like when Paul says, hey, I was a Pharisee as to the law, he's distinguishing himself from other Jewish sects that had developed in that period that he saw as being softer than the Pharisees as far as their posture to the political oppression of, Ro- of Rome or Greece or whoever happened to be in Israel or whoever happened to have exiled Israel. So he's trying to tell them, listen, listen, I'm not one of the, I was not one of those, oh yeah, I'm open to new ideas. (laughs) I think that the religions of the world have merit. No, Paul is saying, I wanted none of that. I was willing to kill these people. 
And I do just want to circle down on, there's a word both you and JT have used several times now, and it's the word syncretism. And Thank you. just give us a quick definition of what syncretism is, because I think it matters for how, first, how we understand Saul, and then how we understand Paul uh, as he begins his ministry of seeking to uh, establish and preserve the purity of the gospel message. So what is the syncretism that he fought as an unbeliever or as a as a Jew? And then what is the syncretism that he combats as a Christian? Yeah, so syncretism, maybe a basic definition would be think of like being in sync with something or or uh, bringing, bringing two or more things together. So what he's fighting as a Jew is he sees these Jewish uh, men and women syncretizing the claims of Jesus into Judaism. And for him, for him to bring in sync the claims of Christianity with Judaism is is tantamount to being heresy. And so the syncretism is something he's trying to combat. He then realizes that that's exactly, it's actually not syncretism, it's fulfillment, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that he had hoped God was going to do in the prophets and in the law. But then he continues to combat, again, I know I'm using the term, he continues to, to combat syncretism or this bringing together of two or three ideas in the early church, specifically as it relates to, well, how, how, how much of kind of a Gentile understanding of the mm-hmm. world can and should not be brought into now this kind of Jewish faith, which is Christianity, or how much of the temple of Adelphoi can be brought in. And so he's helping mm-hmm. Christians that are now coming from Gentile worldviews think about what it means to operate in a distinctively Christian way in Christian lens. Does that make sense? The battle for all of um, religious history, and speaking of Christianity as, you know, the as the, the linchpin for all of that, like the battle of Israel's history has been um, worship God alone. Don't worship the gods of Egypt. Mm. Don't worship the gods of Canaan. And so to find Paul uh, as a Jewish leader trying to fight a battle against syncretism is the most predictable thing that we can expect. Um, he is still yeah. fighting the battle of don't invite into your understanding of what it means to, to worship God alone, some new idea. Uh, and then as you're saying, he, he realizes that it's actually the fullest expression of the idea that he has spent his life studying and, and, and learning about. And and then he has to battle all of the forms of syncretism that beset the early church. Fair? Yep. That's really good. Yes. I Can I, can I say something about that? Yeah. Only if you use the same language that she does at fighting battles, because we could put the song in right here. <laughs> <laughs> it would work. I do want to make a note about something that is and uh, I think it's important to say, Paul is often invoked as the patron saint of uh, those who want to make their whole ministry opposition work. Mm-hmm. He's like, well, look at Paul. He was constantly he was constantly calling out syncretism. He was constantly calling out these kinds of ideologies that were finding. He was constantly challenging, constantly defending. Yes, a part of Paul's ministry was combating false ideas. But Paul's ministry is uniquely helpful because he was a synthesizer. Paul was willing to take true ideas and build something with them. He didn't just stand on the true ideas he already knew and just swat all other things away. And I think a lot of a lot of theological engagement today and particularly 
in the worst places online, invokes Paul to basically just say, okay, well, we got to be out there always defending, always destroying, always holding on and, and defending the truth once for all delivered to the saints. And Paul, look, Paul did it, and he did it with very strong language. This is true. Paul did that. But it was not all of Paul's ministry. Paul built things with theological truths. He built things with the witness of scripture. He assembled things. He did new theology. We need Paul to have been a new theologian. So to use a sportsy metaphor, and I'm pretty famous for using them, uh, you're saying that it's not enough to simply have a good defense. You also need a good offense. Did I do that right? Yeah, absolutely. Rose? Absolutely. You did it. Yeah. So are you comfortable giving us an example? You said you were, you know, the worst places of the internet. You want to give us a tour of one of the worst places of the yeah. internet? Well, just talk about, look at how, uh, look at how some will talk about gender mm-hmm. right now. Uh, how, how, how some want to talk about gender and is there gender confusion? Is there gender confusion in America? Absolutely. Is there gender confusion in the world? Absolutely. Are there godless ideologies out in the world that are looking to advance something that we think is not true around gender? Absolutely. But the reality is, is that if we're going to follow in the ministry of the Apostle Paul, we don't just stand on what we know to be true and look at all of these new questions that the Bible will speak to and say, great, uh, uh, how dare you even ask these questions? How dare you even have these thoughts? And slam dunk on the legitimate questions of the spirit of our age. Paul was willing to confront things. His sharpest words were reserved often for those who were inside the church, but Paul was also willing to build things. And so I think that a great example of that would be, you know what? Let's start to talk about how does the witness of Scripture inform our responses to some of these questions and not just say, well, Paul slam dunk on the Judaizers in Galatia, so I can slam dunk on the LGBTQ movement in America. I, I, one, I don't think those are the same audiences. And two, I don't think all Paul did was slam dunk. Now, if all you want to do is slam dunk, that's really a problem with you, but it's not really a model of the ministry of Paul. So... Well, it's not a sustainable ministry model for anyone. Yeah, and nor is it a biblical model of right. ministry. It is a it is a part of a biblical ministry, but it's a part. If it's what you do, then you are doing something wrong and you're leaving something undone, more importantly. Okay, that was my soapbox on <laughs> that. Um, uh, Paul, uh, Paul is certainly... You, you could have just texted me, Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> mm, you know it. Uh, <laughs> You know, I, I just uh, I think it's important that we uh, that we that we do discuss that at this point, the Jewish like Paul's response and the Jewish response to what's happening with Christians. I want to say it like this: it's appropriate given how the Jews view what's happening with Christians, like their actions towards this emergence of followers of Christ, because keep in mind, they're not seeing Christians as the birth of this new thing. They're seeing it as a blasphemous sect of Judaism, and they're trying to prune that branch. So just enter into Paul's world, Saul's world, we should say, pre-Damascus Road. Saul genuinely believes 
that these Christians are going, they're first off, they're definitely blaspheming Yahweh mm -hmm. and they're interested in bringing a lot of other people into blaspheming Yahweh. And what does Saul believe will happen if they do that? They will be judged and Israel will be judged because of their wickedness. Right. Israel's whole history is full of a small group of people starting to worship a false God and God judging that nation because of that. Mm -hmm. So they are always, in particular, the Pharisees are always going to be watchful. It, that's why they don't want any assimilation. They don't want any syncretism because if they know, they've seen God move. If that stuff gets into the camp even a little bit, mm -hmm. they could come under the, the holy and righteous judgment of God. So Saul's actions and the Jewish community's actions here, apart from the encounter that one might have with Christ by grace through faith, which Paul certainly has at the, at the Damascus Road, Apart from that, their response is is appropriate. Mm -hmm. And I think we miss that. Mm -hmm. We kind of look back and we're like, look at all these bad guys mm -hmm. who didn't get it. No, they have been in this moment before many times and they have learned. And Paul is actually doing probably what in all those other times they should have done when the false god was Baal. And he's looking at Christ and going, is this another Baal? Because if it is, we know what happens if we do not address this right now. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's yeah, I a think really... that's exactly right. Mm -hmm. Because it's easy for us to read it and be like, "Well, Paul just didn't get it." No, Paul. If I, got I would have been there, I would have yeah. you know, <laughs> yes. done differently. Yeah. Do you ever get stuck wondering how to study a Bible passage? The Courage for Life Study Bibles for Women and the Courage for Life Study Bibles for Men have over 1,400 Bible studies. That's a Bible study on every page of Bible text. Access to the Filament Bible app lets you dive even deeper. If you download the app and you scan the page number, you can open up a world of resources, including over 25,000 additional study notes, hundreds of videos, and a full audio Bible. Start discovering at courageforlifebible.com. That's courageforlifebible.com for incredible study notes and an incredible study Bible. What bridge is God calling you to cross that the gospel might go forth among the nations? Women like Lilius Trotter, Harriet Newell, and Sarah Hall Boardman Judson have indeed crossed their own bridges to get to the lost. Discover the stories of 10 inspiring female missionaries who changed the world for Christ. 10 Women Who Changed the World is seminary president Daniel Aiken's powerful tribute to these women who fulfilled the Great Commission. May we all follow in their footsteps. 10 Women Who Changed the World is available wherever books are sold. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about the Damascus Road um, and the Damascus Road experience. We're we going to talk about Romans at all. Oh, you're so bad, JT. Oh, I was just using your line. <laughs> okay, here we go. We're doing backstory. I, I just felt like— I'm just like... kidding. I'm just kidding. Do it. It's good. <laughs> all right, JT. Uh, I didn't know that the first episode is when we would go toe-to-toe, -to -toe, but I this promise you— This is the first you, episode. This is, the, starts, this is the second episode. If you start salty, I'll bring it. Think um, how different JT would be if God struck him blind on a road somewhere. Oh, you guys, you guys. Hey, I'm not going to say I pray that God might strike JT blind for a few moments. I've often prayed he might strike him mute for a few days. You guys are going to feel really bad if I get struck by lightning on the way home today. I oh, would feel bad. Well, I would. Me too. But also curious. Me too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh gosh. Oh, let's talk about his conversion because I do think his conversion moment is significant. Um, uh, JT, would you just hit us with Acts eight? Would you read? Oh, excuse me, Acts nine. Would you just read verses one through nine for us? Yeah, for sure. This is the conversion of Saul, Acts chapter nine. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone all around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, neither ate nor drank. There you go. So uh, I think one of the things that's really important about this story is the way that Saul is converted, because I do think that it's going to factor in significantly to how Paul thinks about salvation and how he writes about Saul's mm-hmm. salvation. Um, I've mentioned this on the break uh, on the podcast before, and so you guys are probably sick of me talking about it. But I think when Jesus confronts Saul, the language he uses factors in significantly to the doctrine of union with Christ. That becomes, mm. I would say, a bedrock for the doctrine of salvation as Paul communicates it, and it's going to come up in Romans. That's why it's important for us to get it now. But in verse four, when it says he heard the voice saying to him, "Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me?" And then Jesus doubles down on it. And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Mm -hmm. Now, I I believe what we're to see from that is that because Saul isn't like, he's not going to Damascus to persecute Jesus. Mm -hmm. Jesus isn't in Damascus, right? Now the body of Christ is, Christians are, the presence of Christ is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Yes, all those things are true. But the Lord Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God the Father. So in what way is Saul persecuting Jesus? right? Mm -hmm. Well, by virtue of persecuting his people who Jesus Mm -hmm. identifies with. I think right here at the moment of Saul's conversion, we get a picture that Saul from the very beginning at his moment of conversion is realizing that this Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ identifies with his people to such a degree that when he asks Saul, why are you persecuting me? He can actually say that. It is as if we we are. It is as if Saul was persecuting the uh, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ by virtue of his persecution of his people. That this is an association that the Lord Jesus makes that's so close with his people, and this is important because again, the doctrine of union with Christ is a doctrine that tells us that we are in Christ. And that that's not a figurative thing. It's not a metaphorical reality, that it is a dynamic and vibrant and real experience that we as Christians are in Jesus, that what can be said of Christ can be said of us and that we live our lives in him. And I think that's really important to understand about how Paul thinks about salvation. I think we find it right here at his conversion. Is there anything else about Saul's conversion that you feel like is relevant as we jump into Romans? Uh, absolutely. It's relevant to the way that he describes himself in verse one of Romans. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. And that's significant. We tend to think of the word apostle as being interchangeable with the word disciple. And it's not. There's a significant difference there. And um, the difference is that 
he, an apostle is someone who is called to his ministry of proclaiming the gospel by Christ himself. So even though Paul is not someone who walked with Jesus during his earthly ministry, he still receives his call um, directly from him on the road to Damascus. And he references that here at the beginning of Romans because of all those who might call themselves an apostle, he's the one who probably has to make this claim the most vehemently as it would be the one that would be questioned the most. Yeah. Yeah, because of his track record, right? Right. <laughs> I mean, we I mean, we see that with Ananias in the moments right after this when God's like, hey, Ananias, I want you to do this. And Ananias is like, isn't that the same guy right. who's looking Back for people Acts, like yeah. me? Mm-hmm. Right. Like, mm-hmm. So, yeah, you're right. He is this claim of being a representative uh, uh, who has been deployed by the risen mm-hmm. Christ. Mm-hmm. That is a claim that will be contested in a way that Peter's claim was not going to be contested. Right. What would you guys add to the description of the distinction between a disciple and an apostle? I mean, a disciple is a learner, right? It just means someone who is learning from a teacher. Yeah, well, the words that disciple emphasizes learner, apostle emphasizes sentness. It's Greek word apostolos. It's carrying with it messenger status. Mm -hmm. It's carrying with it sending, sent, even sometimes as an angelic messenger. So there's a lot that's going on there. But I would say that that is another one that if a disciple is primarily a student first, an apostle by designation, I'm not saying that Paul wasn't a student or these people were, they were disciples before mm-hmm. they were apostles. Paul was commissioned to be an apostle though, like at the same time he was commissioned to be a disciple. But there are the, I guess the lead, the foot that's forward is different. If, if for apostle, it's like the foot that's forward is sent and the foot behind is a, a student for disciples maybe it's reversed. Okay, let me put it another way. In all of your years of ministry, how many disciples have you met? Every Christian I've ever met. And how many apostles have you met? Zero. Okay, so the distinction there, you know, becomes important. I have met some people who fancied themselves apostles. <laughs> uh, just as a note there for my, for I, I want to give the note for my charismatic brethren. Uh, that, <laughs> and uh, sister. There are some, and sister, and thank you, my charismatic family. Uh, I, you are, hey, you you are fully known and fully loved, and and I'm here for you. You're just but, not an apostle. <laughs> well, but I will say this: you might sometimes. Why why did you do that? It was a moment of tenderness. I was extending an olive branch. Uh, there are sometimes where the language of apostolic yeah. gifting gets yeah. used to emphasize, like, hey, there are people who are uh, who have giftings on evangelism or uh, creativity, ingenuity when it comes to the mission field. They're enterprising. They're they're uh, they're interested in pioneering works as it pertains to the gospel. So I understand that apostolic giftings can sometimes be used in that way. And I think that's a really I think that is a fine way to talk about how the role of the apostle, the office of the apostle having ceased, and it has, I believe that firmly and fixedly. And I think it's clear. I don't think that office is active. I don't think you should, I don't think people should be calling themselves apostles. I just want to be on the record of saying that. But I will say I can understand why there are apostolic giftings that we can say like, yeah, we want to identify those in people and send them out. Anyways, that's just a note. Okay, let's talk about actually Romans 1. Unless yeah. you had anything to add on conversion on the conversion story, JT? No, that all sounds great. Yeah. I, I do think, I mean, if I was going to add anything, but maybe it's a transition into Romans 1, he says a few things about himself that I would imagine when he writes these words, he is thinking back to this dirty, dusty road on the way to Damascus. 
that he he sees himself to be, and Jen, Jen mentioned this briefly, a servant. The Greek mm-hmm. term there is doulos or slave, um, which he, he understands himself to be allegiant to or giving faith to or putting himself under the authority, uh, the lordship of, of Jesus Christ. And as called to be an apostle, this is not something that he was ambitious towards. This is not something he, he didn't like sit down with a career coach and think to himself, you know what I really want to do in the next, like this 10 year trajectory, if I could be called to be an apostle, like this was something that this is a mantle that Jesus on the Damascus road placed upon him. He says, you're mine. I'm setting you apart for this task to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the ways that Paul describes himself? We've mentioned a few of them, servant, apostle, but look through there. What are other things that we're looking at when we're thinking, what are other, I guess, identity markers, descriptions of himself, of his task? What stands out to you in those first nine verses, eight verses? Well, he says he's set apart for the gospel of God. So that, you know, and that's that idea that's pervasive in the scriptures of the people of God being set apart. Um, He's here specifying, I would imagine, since it comes right after he says called to be apostle, that he's been set apart in a a particular way, Um, set apart for the gospel of God. And then it says, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, which I think is a significant statement. We touched on this in the in the teaser episode, but that the gospel of God was promised through the prophets. I think that's a significant point that we need to not rush past, that we think of the good news as a New Testament idea when in fact it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. We talked about that when we you know, were talking about Genesis last season. Um, but what we're seeing here is the the fullness of that gospel message, not uh, a new proclamation of it, but, Mm. but it being drawn out to its, to its uh, fullest expression in in the finished work of Christ. Yep. That's good. What else, JT? What else stands out to you? I mean, I don't know if this is specific to his calling or, or who he is, but he's regularly talking about what his hopes and desires are for his ministry, specifically as it relates to the church in Rome. He is, again, moving from the eastern part of the Mediterranean, supposed to go to Jerusalem to bring monies that have been collected. And he's saying, I eventually want to come see you, which is, I think, if you're thinking about it from a rhetorical style, he's trying to develop credibility with them. He wants to, he's not met them, he's not been with them, but he wants mm-hmm. to be with them. He's showing kind of this pastoral sensitivity of wanting to see real people and be with real people on his way to Rome. And in verse 15, he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Not as if they don't believe the gospel, but he wants to build them up. And he says earlier in verses 11 and 12, to give them a spiritual gift so that they might be strengthened by his presence. Mm-hmm. Um, but then even highlighting something that Jen just said that I think is just so important for us to see is most scholars take verses three and four in chapter one as kind of this proto-gospel. He's mm-hmm. going to... He's going to build out the gospel in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and following, really from this part. But it's interesting. He, he certainly says this has been, he says in verse 2, this has been promised beforehand. So that's biblical theology of the Old Testament, specifically through the prophets mm-hmm. in the Holy Scriptures. So Paul, from the very beginning of the letter, is giving us a very high view of the Bible and God's redemptive, unified plan, beginning from Genesis, moving its way through the law and to the prophets up until himself. He sees mm-hmm. God acting in this, this, one, this one way and that the Holy Scriptures contain this story. But it's not just any gospel. He sees the gospel 
specifically through a Christ-centered kind of Christotelic lens. He says the gospel is concerning the son, the true Israel, who is the son of David, according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness and resurrection. So for for Paul, the, the gospel isn't, and hear me the right way, we're going to get to the forensic gospel in a moment about what it means for us to receive God's righteousness. But for Paul, that's an implication of who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. So the gospel is bound up in the person and work of Jesus in every way, beginning here in verse three. And that was really, I think for me, as I was studying for today, that just struck me in a fresh way of like the simplicity of this gospel that is knowing who Jesus is. Like that's the God specifically embodied and incarnate in Christ is the gospel. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, talk good. about talk a little about um, why we have these two emphases here in um, verse three and four. We have concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh, and then a mm-hmm. contrasting idea or an extending idea, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Like, what is the point that Paul is making there by making those two statements right next to each other? One of the historical ways of reading it, Kyle, I didn't mean to cut you off, but just uh, we can maybe both give our thoughts that I actually don't subscribe to is seeing this as the two natures of Christ. You see his human nature. He's a, he is the son of David according to the flesh. And he's also mm-hmm. declared to be the son of God in power. I actually think that's an unhelpful way to maybe overly distinguish um, the two natures of the one person, Jesus Christ. I think what he's emphasizing in verse three, he says, again, concerning his son descended from David, sonship there is twofold. It's specifically that he is the uh, um, the preeminent son, John chapter one, verse one. He, is, he has been the word of God, the son of God forever. There was never a time where the son came into being, but it also has some biblical theology uh, meaning to it. Specifically, God's son throughout the entire Old Testament is who? Israel. Mm -hmm. And so Paul is saying Jesus is the new, he's the Israel. He is the embodiment of all that God meant for Israel. And then he doubles down on that by saying, not only is he the new Israel as the son who has lived forever with the father, also this new son who is the true Israel. He also specifically is the son of David. And that should be ringing back our, our conversations around second Samuel chapter seven, that this son of David is going to reign forever. He's going to have a throne that is everlasting and has no end and that God is going to bring his kingdom through. So again, just in this, that one verse, chapter uh, verse three, he's doing this. I mean, that's like biblical theology from Genesis chapter 12, where God calls Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, ultimately this family of Abraham, and then gives a promise then to David. I mean, that's those are the two pillars of the Old Testament in one verse. Yeah, and I think on that note, I think that's really well said. I think on that note, he's making two two points in that space. One, um, this Jesus is uh, Jesus Christ is Lord. He is not just cosmic Lord, mm-hmm. um, but he's uh, meaning he is the proper king. And keep in mind, when the church in Rome hears Lord, who do they immediately think about? This is so key, Caesar. Caesar, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Caesar is Caesar is like Coca Cola. Mm-hmm. in the Roman Empire. He mm-hmm. is a recognized brand. And when they hear Lord, that title, that title is uh, really, really specific to Caesar. So to call Jesus Christ Lord, he needs to substantiate that claim. 
for this church. So son of David is a historical substantiation, so to speak, and son of God, according to the power of the Holy Spirit, is kind of a theological, and I mean that properly, substantiation. This Jesus Christ is not just Lord by virtue of he's the son of God, he's the descendant and the fulfillment of David and the divinic kingship. That's Those right. two things are being held together. And I think as this is implicit here, but I think it becomes clear through the rest of the book of Romans and in its structure, this tells us that there are going to be two emphases of the gospel. And Paul's going to get into this in Romans, this gospel of God, which is a very interesting phrase. Paul's a, Paul doesn't use that a lot. He only uses it sparingly, gospel of God. And I think he's detailing these two emphases in how he portrays Jesus here. He's demonstrating the gospel as vertical, God saves, and it's horizontal, God reigns. Mm -hmm. This is not merely God rescuing his people, God the Father sending the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit rescuing his people. That's true. That's God saving. We might call that the vertical dimension of the gospel. This is also the son of David, the fulfillment of Israel and the Davidic kingship. And what were the promises made to David? It wasn't just, hey, I'm going to save you and bring you up to heaven one day when you die. It was, I'm giving you all of the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Paul, in, the, in Romans, it's not merely a letter of our salvation. A lot of it is, and a lot of what we know of it is. But you start getting into Romans 12, 13, 14, 15, that message gets really clear that the gospel has impact on what it looks like to be a people who now serve the ruling and reigning God and to exercise and extend that rule and reign even over a place like Rome. And so I think we're getting all of that right here. I think it's exactly right. And I think you actually start seeing Paul tease that out in verse eight when he starts, and we maybe need to go back to cover some other stuff, but just to pick up on that point, Kyle, he says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because of your faith that is proclaimed in the world. Typically in kind of a, a Thanksgiving prayerful opening in a letter like this in the first century, they would have thanked God for something. But normally if it's not a biblical letter, it's thanking them for, you know, praying praying that you'd be healthy, praying that you'd have a long life. It's almost like a live long and prosper type, mm -hmm. type uh, verse. But here you have Paul speaking to the church in Rome, who is supposed to be under the imperial cult of Caesar, giving faith, the same word, or allegiance to Caesar. So maybe to put it real simply, Paul is saying to those of you who should, in worldly standards, be giving their faith to Caesar, the faith that you have is no longer given to Caesar, but is given to the true king, yeah. Jesus. And that is being made known to the rest of the world. At the very center of the world, Rome, God is reestablishing his kingdom through faith in Jesus. Yeah. Whew, I think there's a word for the church today in there somewhere. I think so. I think so. And I think that faith thing is crucial, JT. And I'm glad you mentioned it because there's another interesting phrase. And Jen, I know you love chiastic structures and like inclusios and stuff. Not I don't know that, a chiasm. I know. I don't know that this is the beginning or the end <laughs> of a chiasm. But, but I, will show, I will show you this. Paul uses this phrase, obedience of faith, really interestingly. It's the only time he uses it in all of his epistles. But look, mm. you'll see it here. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Now, if you turn over to the very end of Romans, in Romans chapter 16, you hear in the doxology, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God. That has a lot of similar language already from the introduction. But then this, what, to bring about the obedience of faith. 
So obedient, Paul says, I'm going to, I'm writing to you so that we might bring about the obedience of faith. And then at the end of the book, he says, God has disclosed all of this throughout all of history to bring about the obedience of faith. So obedience of faith becomes his purpose statement and his final statement in many ways to everything he says in between. Kyle, are you the guy who reads the last chapter of the book before you read the whole book? <laughs> no, I'm just saying, I think that's really interesting. Here in, the, in his greeting, he mentions a phrase, he mentions nowhere else in his epistles, obedience of faith to the church in Rome. And he ends it using a phrase he uses nowhere else in any of his epistles outside you, of the other use in Romans. Are you suggesting that the entire letter to the Romans is a giant chiasm? I, don't, I, I haven't done the study to prove that, and I don't know that that would be the case. Well, that's how I'm going to spend my weekend doing that now, so thanks a lot. <laughs> oh, man. Well, uh, I think that uh, let's try to land the plane. This has been really good. Uh, when we think about Paul's journey here, going in to uh, uh, this letter, uh, we didn't get really into 8 through 15, but what we hear there is Paul just basically communicating his pastoral thankfulness for the church in Rome, his pastoral appreciation, and his desire to go there. So we find out something historically significant, which is that Paul hasn't been to the church in Rome. Well, and I think also the tone of it, that whole, I long to see that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, verse 11, that we may be mutually encouraged. Like he wants to be a source of encouragement. And mm -hmm. so I think it would not be wrong to understand that what he's going to write in this letter to them, he would also view as being an encouragement to them. Although we're going to hit, you know, for the wrath of God and think, how is this an encouragement? But he's encouraging them in the sense that he is going to reiterate to them things that they already know to be true. And I think we've all had that experience of feeling like, am I the only one who's getting this? Or are we like this uh, outpost that has no support from anywhere else and that we're, you know, holding fast as we know as we know to to orthodoxy or whatever? And, and what Paul is going to do is he is going to... Um, tell them again the things that they already know to be true. And he's going to tell them forcefully and clearly in a way that is memorable for the purpose of encouragement. Yep. It's good. I don't know that we always think about Romans as, a, as an encouraging word. And I think that's mm -hmm. a good way for us to frame up the letter. I think it is. I That's think good. it's a good place, good place for us to land the plane today. In our next episode, we're going to examine what is basically the thesis statement of the letter. Um, and so we hope you'll stick with us for Romans 1, 16, and 17, because it is rich, rich, rich. We want to thank our sponsor, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, if the next step in your service to Christ and his church is additional theological training, please register today to attend Southern Seminary's preview day on October 15th. For just $25, Southern will cover two nights of lodging, as well as all your meals on preview day. You can reserve a spot now by going to SBTS edu slash preview. And I would really encourage you to check that out. And I don't want you to miss our new podcast, the Family Discipleship Podcast. They just released an episode this week on Why Family Discipleship. And they'll be releasing an episode next week on In the Chandler Home with Matt Chandler, just talking about what family discipleship has looked like and looks like there in the Chandler Home. And I'm sure there will be much to learn there. So go find it wherever you get your podcast. You can find Knowing Faith and the Family Discipleship Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can check us out for some behind the scenes stuff over at patreon.com slash knowing faith monthly newsletter other cool things special q a episodes 
all sorts of cool stuff over there. Go check it out. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Thanks for listening. Grace and peace.